0: These people operate under a huge stigma. I'm going to treat their pain as I would any other patient, and approach their opioid use disorder as just a problem on my list.
1: Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali, and
2: you're listening to Pete's Admit. On this episode of Adult Admit, we're sitting down with Dr. Vlad
1: Foman. Vlad is an internal medicine resident. He's finishing his first year at MGH. And we initially were looking for someone to really describe the nitty-gritty of adult pain management, just Tylenol dosing intervals, who we have to hold ibuprofen on, things like that. But what we got was so much more. So we're sitting down today
2: to learn a little bit more, not only about pain management, but also about alcohol withdrawal and opioid withdrawal. We hope you find this episode as helpful as we did. We're super excited for
1: you to take a listen. Without further ado, here's Vlad. Thank you for joining us. Why don't we start with just who you are and where you're from?
0: I'm Vlad Foman. I am a first year internal medicine resident in the primary care program at MGH in Boston. I'm originally from New York. I grew up in Queens where a lot of issues are happening right now mm-hmm. surrounding COVID. Um, so, you know, my heart's with my family. Absolutely. And as a disclaimer, all of the following medical opinions are my own, do not reflect the opinions of my employer.
1: All right. Well, that's very fair. So let's talk about pain management today. Sure. Out the gate, my first ever order intern year was Tylenol. What? What is your go-to inpatient scheduled and PRN Tylenol dosing? And how often do you find yourself using it?
0: Tylenol is also my first go-to pain management dosing. It's tried and true. It's super safe to use even in patients with underlying liver disease. It's a common misconception that you can't use it. You actually can. So I try to go with six fifty milligrams like Q six, you know, to start off. It's kind of like your your go-to. If they need Q4, you could ratchet up to Q4. If you're finding that, you know, you're giving them the dosing quite frequently, and, you know, they're going to probably need a standing dose, you could just do like standing 975, like TID, and just have that standing dose before you move on to other pain medications.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So you'll schedule it just TID, sort of makes it easier on nursing, um, unless you get close to that max dose without going over.
0: Exactly. Uh, And, you know, with somebody without underlying liver disease, you could go, you know, three grams daily easily. And even if they have underlying liver disease, unless they're fulminant liver failure, I feel pretty comfortable with that dosing and reducing the amount of times like a nurse would have to go into the room, the COVID positive patient perhaps is Mm -hmm.
2: key. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a lower limit that you try to max out at for patients with liver disease or, or do you allow up to the three grams?
0: I generally allow up to three grams. Um, liver disease, meaning like if they have underlying cirrhosis, mm-hmm. um, if they have you know some form of LFT abnormalities. I'm not talking like fulminant liver failure, in which case mm-hmm. you probably want to avoid that.
1: Okay, so something that you're thinking about keeping in mind, but not a strict contraindication. Exactly. Excellent,
2: and that is comparable to our adult dosing that we use in our older pediatric patients anyway. So I think the difference there is that we don't tend to schedule it like the TID dose is an interesting twist on it and something to keep in mind when treating adults. Our next favorite medication in terms of pain management is ibuprofen, probably the second order that I put in as an intern. (laughs) Um, what, first of all, do you, do you find this useful? Do you also use it? And then who do you avoid it in?
0: Yeah. Ibuprofen's a little trickier. I I use it quite frequently. Um, my younger, healthier patients, like twenties, thirties, but the, the key contraindications you worry about with ibuprofen is high bleed risk, cardiovascular disease and renal disease, which kind of is most adult patients have some sort of combination of those three. Yeah. So you really you really want to keep that in mind when prescribing any kind of NSAID. Okay.
1: And why cardiovascular disease?
0: There's been a couple of studies, but essentially what it boils down to is two main features. One in MI mm-hmm. and recent MI, it's associated with like risk of reinfarction, heart failure, myocardial rupture. And you know, there's some association with increased clotting in the way, you know, it works with the COX inhibitors and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so most studies have shown that as compared to a placebo it does have like a higher clotting risk. It's not extremely high, but it's something to keep in mind with somebody with underlying cardiovascular disease, peripheral artery disease, stroke whatnot, just reading through your patient chart carefully. Mm -hmm. And then with heart failure, it's also contraindicated in that as well, either with reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction, mainly that it can precipitate, you know, some salt retention and worsening of heart failure. And also a lot of these patients typically have some underlying cardiovascular disease also. So it's kind of like a cyclical thing and you want to keep those two things in mind.
2: Um, So definitely more limited than... It is in pediatrics, I think, just in terms of the comorbidities. What is your dosing and interval of dosing? And what is your max
0: dose? So for this, I try to go a little bit more conservative, like 400 to max 800, but I rarely do that. And I go like Q6. At 2q4 but if you find that you know you keep them on for a while pharmacy will probably contact you before you even realize it and ask you if there's like another alternative you could have oh. and I, I've been paged by pharmacy couple of times like asking you sure you want to give ibuprofen for this long you know they've been on it for a while
1: that's so interesting because our pharmacy will do that for toradol but it won't do that for ibuprofen mm-hmm. it's, it seems like appropriately more conservative in your adult population
2: uh we love to use naproxen outpatient for things like menstrual cramps or musculoskeletal pain do you guys ever use it inpatient
0: i typically don't i, I think it'll be okay to use inpatient i just i think with the you know longer half-life of naproxen, if you run into some issues like a bleeding risk, GI bleeds, or they start developing an AKI, it's just easier to switch off ibuprofen. It's just one that you're given like twice a day, one you're given like four times a day, and it's easier to titrate in that way. In the same way, we kind of fractionate like some of our beta blockers for Mm -hmm. easier titration. I think I I kind of treat this in the same way.
1: Yeah, easy on, easy off with ibuprofen. Yeah.
2: Okay. For us, if we need an IV medication and we want to use an NSAID, we use Toradol or Ketorolac. Is that, do you use it as, as often as we do in pediatrics and adults?
0: I think probably a little less often. We use it pretty frequently. It's still, it's a great medication and um, mm-hmm. offers great pain relief. You know, if I'm using it for a couple of days, you know, less than five days is the like recommendation, mm-hmm. I'm pretty okay with it. Just keeping in mind the same thing with like the other NSAIDs, the AKI, the CKD, um, bleeding risk, cardiovascular risk. And for this one, you definitely like will get a call from pharmacy as you guys said. You know they'll yeah. they'll bother you before you even realize it.
2: <laughs> What's your dosing and interval that you give it at? Uh,
0: about like fifteen to thirty um, milligrams, like q six hours. You know, depending on what their pain is, um, what some of their contraindications are, um, if there are other alternatives.
2: Do you ever start with like a loading dose? Because I feel like sometimes we do that. We'll give a little bit of a higher dose, and then we'll space out to maybe fifteen.
0: I've never done that. Never done that. I, I, I just start with those. And maybe some people do, but I've never had.
2: I think it's probably a style
1: thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've gotten roasted for ordering less than 30. Like if you're going to do it in someone with healthy kidneys, just do it. Yeah. The same. That's what I'm, that might be, that might be a children's thing. I don't know. Yeah. Another children's thing is if you've got someone on standing toward all, do you add a PPI sometimes? Or is that, is that something that seems like too many medications for no reason?
0: I mean, I typically don't just add a PPI prophylactically because mm-hmm. there'll be on, you know, this medication not super long, if they're coming in already anemic, and if they like have like an indication for like an NSAID pericarditis, so like I'm treating them with an NSAID anyway, maybe then at that point I'm adding a PPI if I know they're going to be on an extended course. But if they're just hanging out, they have their hemoglobin's completely stable. They have no indication of bleeding. I don't just put them on that, just because they're not going to be on toradol so long. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to be like three, five days max. Mm
1: -hmm. Right, that makes sense. Okay, before we move on from our non opioids, I'd love to know if you have an opinion about IV Tylenol. I know that the the literature goes back and forth as to whether it's worth the cost.
0: So I'll be straight up. My institution. Like I had to order it off formulary, like Ivy which was oh, surprising wow. to me because in my med school, it was ordered pretty frequently and we mm-hmm. had a children's hospital there too. And it was like used all the time.
1: Yeah. We get a pop-up window, but we can order it, right? It's like, we don't have to call anybody. Yeah, We, can order we, it. we get a bunch of, when we're
2: ordering it, we get multiple pop-ups, but then we can order it. So it's interesting that it's not a formulary medication there.
0: The only thing I could think of was they probably had some big meeting and decided that it wasn't cost efficient to have it mm-hmm. in adults mm-hmm. at my, at like MGH. So they just said, Nah, we won't get it.
2: I'm curious then, what was the case in which you felt like you had to that you ended up ordering it non-formulary? Yeah, full non-formulary med request for
1: that IV Tylenol.
0: Yeah. So th- this this woman just really wanted Tylenol. She couldn't take PO. Oh. She like had a very high aspiration risk and her pain reacted like very well to Tylenol. Like it was a very effective medication for her. Wow. I and mean, she knew in the past that it, it really helped her. So I said, why not just get her some IV Tylenol? And that's the other thing with adults. They'll tell you what medication worked for them in the past. They've been around the block a bunch of times. So they've tried all sorts of pain meds. So they'll they'll let you know, like, this worked <laughs> for me or this didn't work
1: for me. That, honestly, every once in a while, we get a patient who can just tell you, and it's so nice.
0: It's, it's really nice, right. yeah.
1: Yeah. And that was nice of you to do all that paperwork for her Tylenol. Yeah, yeah
0: that is. <laughs> I had to make an extra phone call or so, like, talk to pharmacy why this is necessary. <laughs> And just be- before we go off of, like, to opioids, a quick pitch on, like, some of the non-opioid pain medication, lidocaine patch um, is my next go-to when things don't work. I just put a lidocaine patch oh. on nearly everybody before, like, I jumped to opioids. I'm like, let's see if it works. And sometimes it does.
1: Wait, what kind of pain are you putting a lidocaine patch on?
0: Like, musculoskeletal pain. Like, it's not visceral pain, mm-hmm. but if they're complaining about, like, back pain Or knee pain, osteoarthritis, things like that, like things that I'm given escalating doses. Yeah, so I I try that. um, And oftentimes it works. And sometimes it just makes me give a lower dose of the other medications.
2: So if it can prevent you from maxing out on your other meds, that can be a great adjunctive therapy. What is the percentage of lidocaine that you, I feel like whenever I order lidocaine, like, what type of formulation is it? Is it the cream? Is it the you know, thing? What what am I? So what what type do you order?
0: I use like a one one percent like lidocaine patch. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I mean it just numbs the general area. If it's a musculoskeletal complaint, theoretically it should be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. And so much of the pain we get is like back pain or really opioids won't really be that helpful for mm-hmm. um, theoretically. So that's kind of my uh, mentality with them. It also like helps the patient feel like they're getting multiple pain modality treatments and, and that I'm actually listening to what they're saying.
2: Well, we could definitely try that. What about muscle relaxants, things like that?
0: It's, it's a great medication for like those muscle spasms. I would just caution with any kind of AKI or any kind of chronic kidney disease. Baclofen is, real, is metabolized in the kidney. So people can get really sedated, really, really sedated, and you'll be very confused why they're all of a sudden altered, and you'll realize that their GFR is less than 30, and you gave them baclofen, and they're just not metabolizing it at all.
1: Oh, so they can't get rid of the baclofen if they've they've got a reduced GFR.
0: Yeah. You need to be very gentle
1: with the dosing. That's good to know.
0: Yeah, especially if they're on dialysis, but even if they have like heading towards dialysis in a less than GFR dirty sort of range, you want to be careful with that.
2: Okay. And even with cyclobenzaprime, like all like the same?
0: I'm pretty sure, but I'm not as confident with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Same goes for gabapentin too. Gabapentin is a great med. It's like really good for neuropathic pain and we give mm-hmm. it all the time for if you have diabetes and pain and sometimes other sorts of musculoskeletal complaint that we think are like nerve related. Mm-hmm. We give, but it's also metabolized by the kidney and excreted by the kidney and you can get into trouble with people getting pretty sedated. And, you know, if you give somebody back and you give somebody gabapentin and they're on like another sedating meds, like a benzo, and all of a sudden they're completely altered.
1: Oh, wow. That is very good to keep on our radar. Okay. So you have pain
2: that's not really responding to your Tylenol, your NSAIDs. We're thinking about our third line. Well, really our fourth line, if we've tried our adjunctive stuff. what do we? What's your go-to
0: opioid? I think it depends if they're opioid naive or opioid tolerant.
2: How do you determine that?
0: Yeah. So... I ask them, I look in their history, I see what they've gotten, if they've been like hospitalized in the past, if they used opioids many times, you know, they're not really opioid tolerant if they were hospitalized three years ago and they had a few oxycodones here mm-hmm. and there. That's, I wouldn't really count that. But if, you know, they, somebody prescribes them to an outpatient, it's on their med list, I would consider them opioid tolerant. So if they're opioid naive, that's easy and they could take PO, I generally start with either PO oxycodone or PO hydromorphone diluted. Morphine is also okay, but it's contraindicated in chronic kidney disease and AKI. So you would want to avoid in that case. And because so many patients in, in the adult side develop an AKI or have an AKI coming in, it's just not something I turn to quickly. Although that may be more of a style thing than like an actual dogma thing.
1: So your go-tos are PO-Oxy and Dilaudid. Yeah. And morphine, you're a little bit more careful in your patients with reduced renal function. Exactly. Okay. What is your, what's your PO-Oxy? Do you have a go-to dosing for someone who's here, new pain, opioid naive?
0: Yeah. So with PO-Oxy, I start with five milligrams, like very, Mm -hmm. like the lowest dose. Mm -hmm. And then I could go up to 10. And the thing with opioids, you could give it Q4, Q3. It gives you you know, a little bit of flexibility in how you space it out, depending on how much pain they're in. If they're, you know, if they have pancreatitis, and you're really increasing the dosing, you might be doing Q2 hours. As you guys know, with somebody with sickle cell disease, you can start out Q1, Q2 hours, Mm -hmm. pain medication until they're out of their crisis. So it's kind of variable, but that's kind of where I like to start. And with hydromorphone diluted, if it's PO, I give... Like, you know, one milligram, two milligrams, you know, to start out with to kind of go slow and then ramp up as needed. And then if it's IV, I give them like a 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams IV and see how they deal with that two, four hours. And if they need it, like increase um, depending on their reaction. Mm
2: -hmm. So what is your, what is your threshold at which you think about starting a PCA?
0: I think the patient would have to be on a dose of opioids that I'm not comfortable with or getting it so frequently that it's impacting nursing and patient care otherwise. Like if they're getting it Q one hours and it's still not covering them, I get it for that. If, you know, the patient feels like they're not being listened to and they have like physiologic reason for pain, Mm -hmm. I could do that. So I think it depends on, you know, what your clinical suspicion of what you know their pain needs are, and if you know you're having trouble controlling it, I would go for a PCA pump. Although personally, I've never initiated a PCA pump on somebody um, without pain control, or rather, chronic pain mm-hmm. or palliative care's input. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you use your you use your interdisciplinary team for that. Yeah, if they don't have a reason for true nociceptive pain. Even if they have hypersensitization, our argument is not that they deserve less empathy, but that opioids are not the correct treatment. And so we're being careful about PCAs.
0: Exactly. And I just want to bring up one more point uh, about, you know, kind of the dosing of opioids in general. If you find that, A, you know, you're switching from one opioid to the other, Mm -hmm. like from oxycodone to Dilaudid, either for an IV reason, or, you know, you're switching to... uh, like from morphine to fentanyl or whatever, or just remember there's incomplete cross tolerance Mm -hmm. for these medications and doing like a simple conversion of like one to one or like whatever the conversion ratio between the opioids is can give them too much at once because some of those receptors are being filled already. So you want to, when you convert from one opioid to the other, you want to, reduce the dose by 25 to 50%. Okay. On the new Ooh. opioid. Yeah. Okay. And that also applies if they're coming in on long acting opioids. So I would calculate like how much opioids are doing at home. And then when you write them for an opioid in house, I would caution, if you're going to write them for an opioid in house, I would caution just converting to the opioid you are going to use in house and giving them that exact amount, reduce initially, and you could always uptitrate later in order to risk You don't want to risk, you know, giving them an overdose accidentally.
1: Mm -hmm. So the incomplete cross tolerance puts them at risk for an overdose. Exactly. That's a good point. And I feel like
2: something that we don't see as often in in pediatrics. Yeah. Mostly because I think that when we get to that point, we're already consulting our pain team, and they probably do a lot of that thinking for us, which Mm -hmm. is great to have them. But I think it makes us a little bit less equipped to do this on ourselves on an older patient. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure.
1: What, when you, do you get patients often complaining of being very itchy when you give them opioids? And if so, do you have something that you, you normally use to treat it?
0: You know, I really don't. And I give a bunch of opioids to a bunch of different patients. And I had this issue come up twice. And both of those patients were on a PCA pump. Oh, interesting. And I looked into it and it has a much, much higher rate. Of producing like opioid induced puritis if it's with a PCA pump or like an epidural in an OB patient rather than like either PO or IV opioids which I've actually never seen we're just given PO opioids given like puritis from opioids
2: but we see but we even see it in patients who don't oh yeah but that's the big IV doses around the clock yeah, yeah the situation. big yeah I think that's what it is they're getting that's true. What are the other side effects you see co- more commonly?
0: Number 1, 2 and 3 is constipation. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you're putting somebody on standing opioids You just give them Senna nightly and Miralax daily to start. And then sometimes that's not enough. You know, some of these patients come in with various chronic pain issues. They were on opioids back home and now you're increasing the amount of opioids they're getting. And also they're not moving, they're staying in bed. So constipation is going to be a big thing. And I spend a lot of time struggling with patients who just, you know, did not poop. And you're just making it worse because (laughs) you keep giving them more pain medication and then they're in pain. Because their stomach is descended, so they ask for more, and then it just makes the situation worse, and then just, they don't poop for like a week or two weeks.
1: That is, that's horrible. A classic (laughs) inpatient cycle, I'm so sorry.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's... (laughs) Um, How about nausea and vomiting? Is that something you
0: see? Not typically. I know like Zofran can make the constipation worse, but... You know, if they're really nauseous and vomiting, I tend to give that, you know, you could give like Compazine or other things like that. Mm-hmm. Haldol can help with, you know, nausea and vomiting depending on, you know, the cause. Even like some benzos, that can help with nausea and vomiting, Ativan. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So I think just being creative with your nausea and vomiting, but I don't see it like typically as a side effect of the opioid. Got it.
2: Okay. And I think we see that I feel like I see that in young, completely opioid-naive kids that were young and small kids. <laughs> this is just from like my... <laughs> Brand
1: new kids. pain. Yes, exactly. It it exactly. The kids get nauseous so easily, right? Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> they will literally <laughs> vomit vomiting. up the person. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. How do you see respiratory depression that's significant from opioids on the floor? Is this something that you come across? Have you ever had to give naloxone or...
0: So... I've come across this situation personally twice. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a common thing at all, and we are nowadays, especially with the, the whole opioid crisis and our addiction consulting, we're very cognizant of that. So, not really. One time, it was with a patient who got a lot of opioids in the context of a cancer diagnosis, oh. and he was opioid naive. And when coming back from CT, he was just getting more opioids and. Mm-hmm. And he was also getting some benzos and he had some like respiratory depressions results. Now he had to give naloxone for that. Oh, geez. The other patient was a little bit more illicit opioid situation case it was in the ED when I was earlier this year and the patient actually shot up heroin while he was in the bathroom of the ED and went into respiratory depression right there on the floor of the bathroom.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, I didn't yeah, it, it was a surprise to everybody. His bag was searched before it came in, but somehow he snuck it in. Wow! And he required naloxone. He actually had to get CPR. He, he recovered, but yeah. So that was the most traumatic or yeah traumatic episode of that. Um, but that does not happen typically. No,
1: so, that okay. was not with your ATC. Delighted. Yeah, that was a separate. That's true. <laughs> was, that, wasn't but, was that, that, that was oh my god!
0: That was not deluded. That was not deluded. It was it was heroin. <laughs> wow. Yeah. wow. Wow.
2: Do you guys ever use nalbuphine or newbain?
0: You know, it's because I don't really experience the puritis um, situation that often. It's in, you know, our, you know, internal medicine guidebook to do if they experience like opioid induced puritis. I, the one time I had it, I gave Benadryl mm-hmm. and I just went down on her opioid and that resolved. So I never had to do it, but mm-hmm. it's technically, according to studies, it's better than Benadryl. So I'll turn to that if that's an issue.
1: Yeah. It's a, the antagonizes the site that causes itching. Our pain team likes it for itching with PCAs, but we also give it just for, Patients where they're not quite at the level when they're where they need oxy, but they're also failing your NSAID and your Tylenol. We give mm. it for pain. Yeah, I think that that's we do it. Thing. I think that, I think that some OBs do it, but I haven't seen it anywhere else.
3: Huh? So, so you guys awesome. don't I use it for pain that. at all. Yeah, no, but I, that's really
2: that's cool. Uh, I tried to order today. It's we're out in the hospital. Alice, did you know this? Oh yeah, but also critical shortage. Yeah. <laughs> What what are your just so we know, I mean, I'm sure it, it's the type of thing that you look up in a pinch, but what are your doses of naloxone that you're giving in acute respiratory depression?
0: That's a great question and I could touch on it now. So you know you're given the naloxone like comes in like 0. 0.4 milligrams. Mm-hmm. We're recommended by our addiction consult team and this is what we do is to dilute it one to 10 before giving it and actually give it in like Q1, Q1 minute doses to see how they react to it just because, you know, if you just bolus them with that entire naloxone, it's going to work. They're going to come out of it and they're going to be in withdrawal sometimes if they're like suffering from opioid use disorder and that's very unpleasant to them also. So you don't want to do it to that level and your goal when somebody is overdosing, not to completely bring them back to normal mental status it, and rather yeah. not to bring them back to like completely. Your goal is not to bring them back to complete attentions, to bring them back to slightly increased mental status, a normal respiratory rate, a normal O2 sat. So, you know, they're not going to, you know, die and they're not going to be in like hypoxic respiratory failure, that they're just going to be okay, but they could be you know, a little bit altered still.
1: Okay. Yeah. So yeah, a a good point to hit because I feel like I don't really know. Yeah. Let's move on to talking about alcohol withdrawal. Is this something that you see a lot on your internal medicine floors?
0: Yes, all the time. And it's my favorite topic. I'm thinking about addiction medicine and interest or alcoholic liver disease. So this is right up my alley of things I'm interested in. But we do see this regardless if you're interested in it or not all the time. (laughs)
2: That's awesome. It's an important, important thing. Anyway, what screening questions do you ask? How do you kind of get, how do you screen for alcohol use disorder in your patients that
0: come through? I'm pretty upfront when asking patients, you know, I start off like, do you drink in general? (laughs) Um, And then when they say yes, you know, I ask them how much and they like how many drinks a week, how many drinks a day. And, you know, if they say I just drink socially, I ask how social are you? Uh, And then... (laughs) And sort of just kind of figure out if they're like above the recommended, like 14 a week for men or seven a week for women. And I kind of start getting into, you know, have your drinking been escalating? How much did you use to drink? When did you start drinking? Like what kind of drinks do you drink? Do you drink? Is it liquor? Is it beer? Is it wine? Then I go into withdrawal question. Like, have you ever experienced withdrawal? You know, has have you ever been in any kind of alcohol detox or rehab program depending on how much they drink and you know the people who you know I'm worried about withdrawal they'll be saying things like on the order of I drink a liter of vodka a day Mm -hmm. or I drink like half a liter like a lot of alcohol or you know I drink a 12 or 30 pack a day like these are the people that you're going to be like most concerned about if they're drinking like you know 20 drinks a week instead of their recommended 14, you know they're probably very very likely not going to go in any withdrawal and if they do have some withdrawal it's very likely not going to be dangerous. So that can kind of help you like stratify like how how serious is this patient and does he really need to be on CWA?
2: Okay. So that definitely it, I feel like what I'm getting from that is that there's not as much subtlety as I would was thinking. It's pretty obvious when somebody's going to be high risk.
3: Yeah.
0: Exactly,
1: and your patients almost know that it's coming and need to tell you so that they can get ahead of it, type of thing.
0: Yeah, and some of them came in like just like three months prior and experienced the same thing, like in this very hospital. So you know, for many of these people, you know, especially if they're above the age of forty, you know, this is not going to be their first withdrawal. You know, some of the younger ones, like in their late twenties or early thirties, this might be the first time they're actually withdrawing because this is the first time they've you know been drinking this much and before okay. they just drank casually. But some of the um, older people with alcohol use disorder, you know, they've experienced withdrawal, they've experienced detox, some have experienced complications of withdrawal. So they've been around the block and they'll probably let you know, like, where, the, when was the last time they were true?
1: All right. So when you're looking at these labs, what kind of stuff do you see on admission labs for someone with alcohol use disorder?
0: You know, important things to get, obviously, CBC, anemia labs, you know. Um, cytopenias. Some of these patients can come in like very thrombocytopenic and you're very concerned without actually any portal hypertension or like mm-hmm. splenic sequestration just as a result of like the alcohol, you know, depression of the bone marrow or like, nutritional deficiencies. And they recover like pretty quick. Once they stop drinking for a couple of weeks, their platelets can go 50s to 200 oh, wow. in a matter of weeks. Yeah. It could be pretty profound, but And I do do the workup, you know, are they hemolyzing? I think about it, but it typically, that's what it typically ends up being. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like a CMP um, is important to get, they have LFT abnormalities, you know, you want to see maybe a lipase if they come in drunk, do they have like pancreatitis, things like that. Um, If they have evidence of any kind of like hepatic dysfunction, persisting, like over if you look into your chart, persisting, like elevated transaminitis or like elevated INR, low albumin which could be both nutritional and liver. Mm-hmm. And if they're altered, like if they have like any sign of like, hepatic encephalopathy, don't get an ammonia. It's not going to change your management, but just kind of clinically.
2: That's a good pearl.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, the ammonia, like just, it's a clinical diagnosis, hepatic encephalopathy. Ammonia is not going to change your management one way or then And you definitely shouldn't titrate your lactulose based on the ammonia. That's neither here nor there. Yeah. But also a little trick I kinda of learned is if they're not upfront about their alcohol use and you really suspect it based on their history, sometimes you could check like an HDL and sometimes that's elevated and because alcohol use upregulates like HDL production in the liver.
1: Interesting.
0: And you could kind of get a sense like, oh, maybe they are drinking and they're not being as upfront with me. Uh,
1: Interesting. it'll bump their HDL.
0: Doesn't
1: H D L go up in like some of the autoimmune hepatitis too?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think it's just a liver synthetic thing, but yeah. 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 Um, that that comes from, I'll name it from Dr. Schmidt, who gave me that pearl and he he does an outpatient setting and I thought it was a really cool pearl. That
3: is uh, good
0: to know. Um, I think lastly, like an ethanol level, be important to get um, because like if the patient is drunk at the moment that you admit him, the withdrawal could come later.
1: Mm, so sort of documenting that and then knowing when the last drink was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the other good point. That's a great point. Asking when their last drink was is one of the most key things you could do.
1: hmm And then when we start to get worried about alcohol withdrawal, what symptoms are we looking for in these patients?
0: So you want to vital sign wise, you want to be looking for tachycardia, kind of unexplained sinus tachycardia, assuming they don't have any kind of arrhythmias otherwise, hypertension, like unexplained. Mm. And then like looking at them, you know, physically, oftentimes diaphoretic, very agitated, Sometimes tremulous just sitting in bed, you know, you wanna kinda take a look at their eyes. They may have, you know, their eyes may be a little bit more dilated. And my my kind of go-to alcohol withdrawal assessment is to ask them to either stick out their tongue and I see if there's a tremor or fasciculations in their tongue, or like stick out their hands and see if there's any tremor in their hands. Oh. Like that being a tremor not asterixis, which are completely independent entities, but you could check for both while you're there.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I think one of like the most important signs is just their mental status, and, like how agitated they are. Because somebody in withdrawal, <laughs> it's not pleasant and they're gonna be, you know, very anxious and very not calm. The thing with Siwa is they ha because some of it is subjective measurements, they have to be able to speak and not be altered to be on Siwa. So putting somebody who's completely altered on Siwa doesn't make any logical sense because some of these are questions like, are you anxious? how can they answer that if they're completely altered? So like, that doesn't make any sense.
2: That's a great point. <laughs>
0: yeah, they're, 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 a point, right? And if they're, you know, delirious, and if they're altered, now you're starting to get in the more dangerous, you know, side of things. Now, it could be like delirium tremens, Because typically, with like alcoholic hallucinations, if they're seeing things, they're aware it's hallucinations, you know, they know that this is not real, and it's freaky to them. But you know, if they're, alternate and they're delirious, now you're in more of the DT category of alcohol withdrawal. and You want to be a little bit more concerned because the risk of both mortality and seizure is much higher in DTs than typical alcohol withdrawal.
1: So you've got your alcoholic hallucinosis, which is like we hear one to six days after the last drink, it's visual hallucinations, but they're aware that they're hallucinating as part of withdrawal. And then for your delirium tremens, that's two to five days maybe after the last drink. They'll have hallucinations, but they'll also be disoriented. And for you, it seems just altered. They seem, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, if they're my experience with DTS are they're not just altered, but they're typically very combative. Mm-hmm. These are the patients you may have to, you know, strap down because they'll be a harm to themselves or others without realizing it. Interesting. And it these are the type of patients that if you admit them overnight, they're going to take up your entire night. You know, mm-hmm. um, a because you know, you just admit them. So you don't know necessarily why they're altered. Typically, you know, DTs is pretty high in a differential because you'll know their history, but you don't know for sure. Could be an infection. It could be something else. So, you know, you'll be working them up for that. And they're and they're going to be very, very volatile. You know, you're you're going to be looking at their vitals. They're going to be tachycard. They're going to be hypertensive. You're, you're not going to be sure what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be pretty combative.
1: And do you see people reach this point often? Do you feel like...
0: no. I mean, the, the people who I've seen like in DTs, they're either, you know, have long, long history of drinking and, you know, came into the hospital either because they, you know, they're found down and drunk and now, you know, they're not drinking. So they're going into withdrawal or, you know, they're doing a combination of alcohol and benzodiazepines, which, you know, is making it worse because, you know, alcohol withdrawal, you know, like last DTs can last, you know, two to five days up to two weeks. Very typical for the last two weeks, but it can. Whereas like benzo withdrawal, like with clonopin, has a much, much longer half-life. So as you're coming down from the alcohol withdrawal, you could be hitting the benzo withdrawal and have a whole new set of delirium for the same like GABAergic reason. But yeah, it could be, it could like complicate the picture a lot.
2: Oh, wow. That's good to keep in mind. I had no idea DTs could last for two weeks.
0: I've never seen it, but that's what the papers say.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. God, that's terrifying. Okay, let's see here. How do you treat have you first of all, have you ever experienced seizures in a DT patient and patients having DTs? and how do you treat that?
0: I've never actually experienced seizure as a result of alcohol withdrawal. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is you would treat it just like you would treat any seizure with Ativan, giving it to them like pretty frequently until you break the seizure.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know you give that to them. But the benefit of that is you know you're treating their withdrawal because what they need, is more GABA medication, like benzodiazepine, So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. Mm
1: -hmm. So you tend to schedule Ativan for your patients in withdrawal in general?
0: So this is where, this is kind of like a stylistic thing. And MGH loves phenobarbital. And I've been Mm. sort of converted to the phenobarbital way. It's not a, a blanket thing that you give to everybody. Typically, I reserve for the people in more severe alcohol withdrawal And if like, I'm concerned about complications for alcohol withdrawal, but you know, it has few like very distinct advantages over benzo. A, you give a loading dose and then you taper and you don't need to do siwa. You don't need to do siwa dosing. You just Mm -hmm. give it and it auto tapers. It has a very long half-life. You know, it's going to last the initial bolus dose you give, IM, is going to be enough to last them even if they don't complete the oral taper. So it's pretty good. It has very predictable pharmacokinetics, you know, unlike benzos, which have like unpredictable
3: pharmacokinetics
0: Mm -hmm. and some people react differently and process the Mm -hmm. medication differently. Very Mm -hmm. predictable pharmacodynamics, you know, you could measure a level and, you know, their reaction correlates to a certain level, which you cannot do with benzodiazepine. And I think most importantly, if this is a patient that's like COVID positive, the nurse doesn't need to go in and check CWA. You know, the nurse doesn't need to go in and keep doing like Ativan dosing. They just give the phenobarbital. The patient's sedated, which is what you want. And they'll be okay. You know, you just monitor their like pulse ox and respiratory status. And it's it's a pretty good medication to give, not just in the ICU, but I've done it on the floor. And people, I wouldn't say like enjoy their withdrawal, but it's much more tolerable withdrawal. Because as opposed to like CIWA with Ativan, in which you're giving it in response to their symptoms. You know, they have symptoms and they're uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. And then it's like a CWA score. And then if they score X, they get a dose of Ativan. Is that sort of...
0: That's exactly it. Yeah. CWA scores, just break it down. I kind of put the card in front of the horse. CWA scores, you know, you score based on certain, like, both objective and subjective parameters. And mm-hmm. objective being, you know, blood pressure, respiratory rate, heart rate, you know, things like that. Subjective being, you know, um, anxiety, you know, headache, you know, things like that, discomfort, and then like other measures like tremors and whatnot. So, you know, these these are measures like the person could be anxious being in a hospital, you don't know, you know, why, you know, they're scoring CY, you know, mm-hmm. on what measures, and also like you're responding to them. So you're not being proactive, you're being reactive. So they're yeah. giving you a symptom, then you react now. Whereas phenobarb, it's kind of very, it's very proactive. So that's another reason I like phenobarb. And we have uh, a document that we use that it's kind of like an MGH protocol, but we basically dose based on how afraid are we of respiratory depression versus how severe their withdrawal is. And it's kind of a graph where we put in their weight and their gender and it kind of spits out what their, you know, dosing should be based on those parameters. And if you don't have that, you could always talk to your pharmacist who are aware they have other graphs and charts that they use to calculate those sort of things.
1: Wow, absolutely. So how much does someone need to be concerning for withdrawal or withdrawing before you load them with phenobarb?
0: I think um, somebody who's like altered and combative, I would give phenobarb if they're, you know, sitting in bed and they're shaking after a few um, benzodiazepine doses, then I go phenobarb. It's important to remember, because, you know, phenobarb can act in in a way that makes the benzo effect even greater. So you want to not get phenobarb if they have already gotten sufficient benzos. So the typical cutoff we give is if they've gotten like greater than 20 milligram benzo equivalents, 24 hours, at that point, you know, we've committed them to benzos and we can't be given phenobarb. But if they've gotten like one or two doses in the ED and now they're up on the floor or they got one dose on the floor then I'm like, okay, it's already, we still have time to switch them. And, you know, they look very uncomfortable. And I'm, it's, it's more, it's a stylistic thing and an experience thing, but you kind of see like, you know, you see that they're going to be needing like higher and higher benzodiazepines to the point that it's going to be like huge effort. And maybe you might be uncomfortable with those high benzodoses, That's when I would turn to a phenobarb.
2: Okay.
1: That's so interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: What, what types of so when I think about alcohol withdrawal and alcohol intoxication, I also think about like electrolyte repletion, thiamine, things like that. What do you What do you order on these patients when they come in?
0: Yeah, so that's a great point. Thiamine for everybody. Just everybody gets thiamine. Everybody gets a multivitamin. Everybody gets folate. Don't even bother checking the folate level or the thiamine level. It's gonna take forever to come back. Just yeah. give it to them. They're gonna be like if they have they actually have alcohol use disorder. They're going to be deficient in these vitamins and it's going to make it hard to like distinguish between Wernicke's and alcohol withdrawal because they're both, you know, have altered mental status. So a thymine, it's not going to hurt them, you know, you just treat them and same thing with a multivitamin and folate. And, you know, we typically give lower doses if they're not altered, you know, it's more of like a prophylactic Wernicke's dose as opposed to like I'm treating Wernicke's, Mm -hmm. but if you called the addiction consult team like in-house they typically give two days of iv 200 milligrams bid i believe it is and then switch to po after that or like discharge with a po okay. time, I mean, I mean. Good to know.
2: and then do you start them on dextrose containing fluids
0: so it's my my hospital and i think my residency program is pretty conservative when it comes to fluids mm-hmm. so we don't start fluids on people unless they need fluids And if the person's coming in, has some moderate withdrawal or maybe light withdrawal, and they're taking PO and they're like eating their dinner, I see no reason to start fluids because, you know, they're going to be getting enough intake that way. If they're, you know, ketoacidosis, either like alcoholic ketoacidosis, starvation ketoacidosis, you can't tell the difference between those two. Right. Or maybe they're also a diabetic and now they're also in diabetic ketoacidosis on top of that because they've been drinking and been starving themselves. Mm-hmm. In that case, I do want to start like bigger fluid in the same way that, you know, you would with any like, kind of ketoacidosis mm-hmm. and give them some dextrose gotcha. after thiamine, of course.
1: Yes, definitely after thiamine. What is going to make you send these patients to the ICU? When do they really get sick? Is it, do they have to seize? Are they just very severely altered? Do they need so many benzos that now you're also worried about respiratory support? What's the Mm. situation where you got to send them?
0: Yeah, I think a combination of all those things. I think, you know, if they're altered to the point I'm scared, they're not protecting their airway. If they're so agitated, now they're like getting tired out because, you know, it's possible they're, you know, in such a GABA deficient state, and like their glutamates acting up, and they're so like hyperactive mm-hmm. that they've been like respirating so hard they could actually tire out, especially if they have some underlying pulmonary disease. I've had to send people with delirium to the ICU just because they tired out from being so delirious.
1: Wow! So it's like a working to breathe from delirium leading to respiratory failure situation.
0: Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And the benzos are probably not making the situation better. So things like that. If they have a seizure, then, you know, at that point, you know, I'm likely send them to the ICU as well because the heart yeah. stops, they need further monitoring. But yeah, kind of like a combination of all those things. And the thing with benzos is, you know, they're probably making them altered as well. Mm-hmm. So like if they're having like very high benzo requirements and the phenobarbital is not working, I think send them to the ICU is the right way to go. Okay. And just a quick pitch for, you know, after you've treated these patients to get the addiction team on board to start them on some kind of either naltrexone or a acamprozate or something to treat their like alcohol use disorder because now you've caught these people in the healthcare system is like a point intervention to actually make a difference in their life so they don't come back to the hospital a couple of weeks or a couple months later with the same issue Mm -hmm. i've seen both when i was rotating on this on the addiction consult services and on the floors it make a huge difference in these patients lives and they started on the medication in-house either giving them like naltrexone PO or naltrexone shot for a month. And uh, they do really well in it.
1: That's awesome. That's such a nice thing to be able to do. And that's such
2: an important point for safe dispoing. Like that's the way to do it. Exactly. Right. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Let's transition to opioid withdrawal. We we don't see, you know, chronic, well, we see chronic pain patients in pediatrics. We're not really familiar with seeing patients who are on opioids for long-term at home besides our specialty services. What do you how do you admit a patient who comes in with chronic pain, maybe on multiple pain medications, some of which are opioids?
0: Yeah. So I basically look through their chart, talk to them, assess, you know, what is their pain from? How long have they been on opioids? Who's prescribing them their opioids? You know, you, you go into your state website that kind of looks at opioid prescribing, see they're having a bunch of different prescribers.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, you know, I talk to them, like, have you needed to increase your opioid use what do you use it for? How do you feel like your pain is well controlled and kind of go from there, just kind of talking to the patient, seeing like how familiar they are with the healthcare system is, you know, like some pediatrics it would be like a lot of sickle cell patients, you know, probably like no opioids pretty well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to see how they do with those things.
2: Gotcha. And do you, what are your kind of rules of thumb for continuing those medications when they're inpatient versus holding them? How do you figure that out?
0: So I think it's an important distinction to make someone has like opioid dependency, meaning like, you know, they've been on opioids and they're physiologically dependent as anyone would be, you know, if they're on opioids for a couple of months or what have you. Versus like an actual opioid use disorder, which is like a DSM-5 criteria disorder in which it's negatively impacting their lives. You know, they're either doing illegal activities; it's negatively impacting their social life, their you know family life. They have a criminal record as a result of this. So that's kind of how I kind of bucket opioid use disorder versus like opioid dependency. And if somebody has opioid dependency, I approach it very differently than someone has opioid dis- use disorder. With opioid dependency, I typically continue you know, their medications, Mm -hmm. if they have a legitimate reason, you know, to be on them, it's like who am I to discontinue them, especially if it's going to, you know, make their pain worse and push them into withdrawal. So I don't want to do that for them. And I I tend to believe them when they're in pain. And then when it comes to opioid use disorder, I approach it similarly, but a little bit differently, because I want to treat, you know, both their pain and their opioid disorder. Does that mean that I don't give opioids to people with opioid disorder? I absolutely not. I give it to them all the time. If they're doing, you know, either street drugs, if they're doing like oral medication, heroin, fentanyl on the streets, it still me- it still could mean that they're in pain and they still deserve pain medication if you determine clinically that they're in pain.
3: Mm-hmm. Similarly,
0: you know, if they're even if they're on Suboxone, Buprenorphine, Naloxone, or Methadone, they you could still give them opioids on top of that if they have a reason to be in pain. So one of them could be treating their withdrawal and one of them could be treating their pain.
1: And then if someone comes in on chronic suboxone or methadone or something and they're also in pain, you can also you can fractionate those doses because the methadones analgesia effects are like, generally pretty short acting, but the anti-withdrawal effects are longer acting. So, for example, if they're on 60 milligrams of methadone daily, you can, you can take them to 20 milligrams TID and that should help get them improved pain control.
0: Exactly. So, I think these people operate under huge stigma and they feel like they're not being listened to when they come to the hospital and they feel like they're not, their pain is not going to be treated. I'm going to treat their pain as I would any other patient and approach your opioid use disorder is just a problem on my list. That's
2: great. That's great. What are some of the big signs and symptoms of opioid intoxication?
0: So, you know, the classic ones are like meiosis, constriction, decreased respiratory depression, decreased mental status. Sometimes you see them doing like the nod, like it's like you know, the opioid nod where they're just kinda of like nodding off, like their head is just kind of bobbing up and down. And you kinda it, it, it's kind of very typical. And also, you know, if they're complaining of, you know, chronic constipation. I don't really often see like hypotension as a result of this, but you can if it's really bad. Bradycardia similarly, I don't really see it, but you can. I um, it's more like along the respiratory depression side of things and the altered mental status side of things is where I really see it. And just because, you know, you don't have meiosis doesn't exclude an opioid intoxication because you could be on, I've had a patient who's doing cocaine and opioid at the same time. It's called speedballing. They just, it's, or meth, you know, they put in a speedball and they do it all at once. So you could have like dilated pupils and be intoxicated on opioid at the same time. It really complicates the picture there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, keep always keeping like poly substance use in mind, because it's not it's not the things that we read in textbooks, which I feel like is a lot of what we remember from med <laughs> school,
1: unfortunately, yeah. the really textbook cases. Totally. How do we treat the respiratory depression associated with opioid intoxication? What's the right way to do it so that it's not also a traumatic event for the patient?
0: Yeah, I think, you know. As I said before, the biggest thing is not giving them too much naloxone at once, you know, not just blasting the 0.4 milligrams. We recommend diluting it like in 10 milliliters of water um, or normal saline and then giving it to them one milligram at a time. And so you can give them one milligram and then you wait. And then if they don't respond, then you give them another one. And if they're not responding, then you give them five more, you know, which is like half the dose. And if they're not responding, then you give them more. And then, you know, and then you start escalating, you know. And you just want, by respond, I mean, you know, they're becoming less altered. Their respiratory rate is increasing. You know, they're not like completely snapping back. But especially with these patients, you know, some of the things they fear the most is withdrawal. It's one of the most, um, from my understanding, one of the most unpleasant things to go through in life is opioid withdrawal. Mm -hmm. and they really don't want to go through that. And maybe the reason that they overdosed is they were trying not to go through that. So doing this like small titration is a way to both keep the patient safe, and also not immediately push them into withdrawal.
2: I think you bring up a good point about it being super uncomfortable. Is it so I think it's what I want to know is, is it as dangerous as alcohol withdrawal could be? Can it be fatal? Or is it mostly that it's just so physiologic, like just uncomfortable? For the patient to
0: experience? It's more just physiologically uncomfortable. I think the danger of opioid withdrawal comes with, you know, what the patient will do with that withdrawal. You know, if they just got some naloxone, are they going to go out and use again? You know, if they're using something like fentanyl or, you know, heroin, you know, and like the other complications of, you know, um, risky needle use. So things like that. But like in the hospital, it's more of like a discomfort and it just kind of makes things unpleasant for everybody because, you know, they're because they're going through a discomfort, they're not gonna be pleasant to, you know, the nursing staff or the clinical staff. And, I um, mean you know, they may get treated differently and we may miss some of the other clinical things that they're here for. So I just think it's an important thing to control, just like you would control somebody's pain or constipation if their knee hurts. I think the withdrawal is just an important thing to control while you're in-house. Yeah.
1: And then are there classic symptoms that you see and do you have ways to treat those symptoms specifically or is your preference, more of a complete transition to like methadone or something like that?
0: So I've done both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to answer your first question, what are some of the classic signs of withdrawal? I just think of it kind of opposite of opioid intoxication. You know, their eyes might be dilated. They might have like rhinorrhea. They might have like diaphoresis, like hyperactive bowel sounds, tachycardia. You know, they might, it might even be like hypertensive and like breathing fast um, just because of how uncomfortable they are. Um, they might be having diarrhea and things like that. Um, so just kind of, you, you get a sense of that, you know, they might be wiping their nose a lot because their nose is running. That, that's kind of one thing. That, so in terms of like treating that, you could treat it symptomatically. Clonidine is effective in kind of lowering the adrenergic surge side of things. You could give the bento, that's, like, I mean, that's for that's like the GI upset side of things hydroxazine can be great for uh, more of the anxiety side of things. So you're not giving them benzos, Mm -hmm. which I try to avoid in these patients. Um, Trazodone, have them sleep at night, which they have trouble doing. Loperamide for diarrhea. So these are all like PRN stuff you could give them. Mm -hmm. I think if somebody's like really withdrawing, I I found it effective just to treat the withdrawal. You do that with methadone or with suboxone, buprenorphine, naloxone. So methadone, you know, if they're withdrawing, Give them 10 milligrams of methadone. See how they do. If they're not responding too well, you give them another 10 milligrams, like 20 milligrams. That's like initial starting point.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You you know, if you're ever nearing like 40 milligrams in somebody, at that point, you want to call for like some assistant with like the addiction console service or like whatever the addiction team you have in your institution um, to help out with that. And just remember to check the, the QTC when you like start them on that. Mm-hmm. And then Suboxone, you know, you wanna you want them to be off opioids for like twenty four hours before you start Suboxone, and there, there have been like some papers like experimenting with like microdosing of Suboxone to like do it like mm-hmm. before the twenty four hour window, but that's kind of complicated. And I've never done that.
1: You'll have to forgive me. Go ahead. I don't remember. How much of an agonist and how much of a, an antagonist is suboxone?
0: So suboxone is a partial agonist. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist, mm-hmm. but it has a super, super high affinity for the opioid receptor. So it will displace any and all opioids, including fentanyl or PO opioids or heroin or whatever you do. So if can, you'll push them into acute withdrawal and make the situation worse. Oh. Yeah. So if they've not been off like opioids for like 24 hours... So you really want to keep them off that for 24 hours. Oh, that's good to know. Before you start them on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were given like treatment protocols where it said like, you know, they have symptoms, give four milligrams, wait an hour and give another four milligrams max. And then you wait another like six to 12 hours, give another four milligrams, max 12 milligrams on the first day, and then give that again on the second day. And you could give like up to 16 milligrams on the second day. I think once you're getting into this kind of minutia of dosing suboxone or dosing methadone outside of your first initial dose, pull them out of that withdrawal. I think you need some assistance from like the addiction consult service mm-hmm. and they, and someone should be helping, you know, titrate this medication. Right.
1: All right. And so when we think about getting these patients from their acute withdrawal to home, what in your mind is the ideal plan to have in place for a safe discharge so that they don't have to come back?
0: So a couple of different things. Number one is you give everybody naloxone. They should have naloxone. And sometimes we even give them like sterile water things, you know, so if they're going to use, you know, they're going to use sterile water. There's a needle exchange here in Boston that they could go to. So giving them resources like that. So, you know, one, you know, if they're still planning on using and they're not interested in any kind of partial agonist or agonist therapy, and you know, they're going to go out there and use at the very least, you know, you instruct them how to be safe. You know, you give them naloxone, you tell them to never use alone, tell them to use clean needles, alcohol wipes, sterile water, you know, things that prevent kind of infection.
1: And wait, what are they doing with the sterile water?
0: So, so I mean, most people wouldn't know this unless they've done heroin because the way you do heroin is you have to dilute it in water and you boil it. You know, you've seen on TV people boiling a spoon.
2: They heat it on the spoon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, most spoons are plastics and nobody does it in a spoon anymore. They do it in like a Like a bottle cap. Ah. So yeah. So that's like kind of like the mixture. But some people, it's a pretty big like homeless population here, you know, in Boston. Mm -hmm. Some of them suffer from opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. So it's important to acknowledge that some of them don't have access to clean water, you know, they don't Mm -hmm. some of them use puddle water, you know, things like that. So whatever and that leads to infections and the carditis, like things like Worst complications yeah. so you know at whatever point you could harm reduce is the thing to do like harm reduction is the name of the game with these yeah. patients and whatever you could do to get them to a point that maybe one day you know they will stop using and they will want to be on therapy for this and so that's number one number two is if they actually started something like suboxone or methadone do they have a prescribed like that's important you know who's going to give it to them once they leave so mm-hmm. you know Oftentimes our wonderful like social workers with the addiction service, they set up, you know, either are they going to a rehab, are they going to a care facility, that they go into like we call them a clinical stabilization services, some of these patients, or you know, are they going to like a halfway house or whatever? And who's gonna prescribe it to them there? And if they chose methadone, and all these patients they, they they will choose. Like some of them prefer one route over the other. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, for methadone. For pain, anyone could prescribe methadone and there's no issues. You could prescribe methadone, TID for pain for any patient. There's no issue, you know, and it's commonly used for pain. It's a great pain medication for people who have no opioid use disorder whatsoever. If they're getting it once a day for opioid use disorders, they have to be in a methadone clinic. Okay. And that adds like a whole new level of complexity to it. And you'll have to work things out with your social work, case worker. And have them enrolled in their local like methadone clinic that they will be able to get their daily methadone if they started it. Mm-hmm. But Suboxone's a little easier. You could have a prescriber who prescribes it like two, three weeks at a time, and you see a primary care doctor, um, my preceptor at my clinic, he's a suboxone prescriber. So some of my patients are on him, they just come get suboxone and they leave. I see them like every couple of months or every couple of weeks, depending on how stable they are. But methadone it's a little bit more complicated.
2: Gotcha. It's interesting when you put that label on it, how it changes everything so dramatically, <laughs> and it has to go. To the
0: it's complete nonsense.
2: No, I'm I mean, I'm curious. How do you dispo like if you're if you're taking care of a person who's experiencing homelessness, or you're taking care of somebody in kind of like a labile social situation where they may not have a primary care provider? What is your how do you dispo them?
0: I mean, that makes it more challenging. Well, it depends what they need clinically. You know, afterwards, mm-hmm. if they actually need clinical care afterwards sometimes we're sent to like a sniff or like nursing home facility short term
3: mm-hmm.
0: if they need like longer care they could be sent to a longer term facility if they need just what we call clinical stabilization they're mostly stable but they need a little bit of watching to make sure you know their foot heels or what have you and we send them to those things um, we have a wonderful thing in boston here called the respite care which mm-hmm. is kind of like care for people who don't need like acute medical issues, but there's still a doctor and nurse on staff like, seeing these people and they could stay like until they feel better and leave. So we sometimes we send them to a respite care place called Barbara um, McInnes House. Um, it's a wonderful place and we, it's the healthcare for the homeless people work there and they do a wonderful job with these people. And a lot of our patients really rely on that. If they don't need any more clinical services and they don't have a PCP, mm-hmm. you're, it's a bit of an unfortunate situation. Mm-hmm. I think... In, in that case, I might want to look into like methadone clinic services because it could provide kind of like a dual thing because methadone clinic, it requires them to show up every day, oftentimes with like group therapy sessions and counseling sessions and have an initial screening by a physician. Mm-hmm. So it can get them, you know, that kind of structure they might need. It'll get them, you know, their methadone on a daily basis. It'll get them, you know, group counseling that they might need. So it's, it's a great resource. They just have to qualify and go there and make that first step in actually showing up to their first initial intake appointment.
1: Vlad, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. this was the perfect tone to introduce patients with substance use disorder to a hospital who truly never sees them. Yeah, thank you. We can't thank you enough.
0: Happy to do it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, yeah, I wish you guys luck managing adults and something I know you guys <laughs> didn't sign up for. <laughs>